You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2007. This episode is entitled, What is Success? Whether we want to or not, everyone must answer the question, what is success? In fact, you have already staked your life on the definition of success that you have chosen. For many Christians, it is fame or fortune or maybe influence, which are largely the definitions of success held by most non-Christians. But what does the Bible say? Listen to this presentation and learn a biblical definition of success in life, and in particular, success in the workplace. Well, I am thrilled to be with you. Well, I'm going to talk to you today about success. The topic came out of a conversation I had with Wayne several months ago over lunch, and he really enjoyed the conversation, and we were talking about what is success. You know, ultimately, you are going to answer that question, whether you want to answer it today or not, because uh, you're going to die. Or in the return of Christ, you're going to die. I'm going to die. So at that point, it's going to be very important how we answer that question. So let's entertain that question today. Maybe we can come up with some clues on what is success. Well, to get us going, let's look at some common views of success. So let me ask you some questions, and I expect you all to interact with me. Okay? If you don't interact with me, I'm going to ask you questions. Okay? That's, that's the deal, so I'll put you on the spot. All right, do you know the name of any of these people here? This is 1923, and we'll give you some people here to see if you know who they are. Number one, the president of the largest steel company. No? Okay. Number two is the president of the largest gas company. Okay, how about the president of the New York Stock Exchange in 1923? All right, how about the greatest wheat speculator? All right, how about the guy that was known as the Bear of Wall Street? Huh? No, no, it wasn't Rockefeller. Well, these are some of the most successful people of the day. At least that's how they were viewed. Commonly viewed as the most successful people of their day. Well, let's look at what happened to them. First one here was Charles Schwab, president of the largest steel company. He died a pauper. Now, this is not the Charles Schwab you know. Okay, it's a different, different Charles Schwab. As far as I know, they are not related. Okay. Next one was Edward Hobson. He was the president of the largest gas company. He went insane. The next one was Richard Whitney. He was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. He wound up in prison, and he was released from prison to die at home. The greatest wheat speculator was Arthur Cougar. He died abroad, penniless. And the great bear of Wall Street was Jesse Livermore. And Jesse died by committing suicide. So how does that make you feel about success? Well, let me give you an alternative. This is Gene Sarazen. He was the PGA champion and the US Open champion in 1923. Now look what happened to him. He played golf until he was 92. He died in 1999 at the age of 95, and he died financially secure. So what's the moral of the story? Forget work, play golf. Very good. Y'all are good. Now, obviously, we're having a little fun here, but there's some, there's some truth in this as well, because every one of us, whether we know it or not, or whether we've consciously thought about it, we have defined success. And most likely, the definition you've taken on has been the definition of the environment you're in. You know, the, the swimming pool that you're swimming in, that's the water you're drinking. So we have adopted, a, the definition of success has largely been denominated by the world's way of thinking. 
Now, for most of us, how would we define success? What would we say? Money. Who's this guy? Bill Gates is the wealthiest guy in the world, right? Is that correct? And we would all say he's a success, right? Why is he a success? Because of money. He has all this money. Now, that's not the only way we define it, but that's probably the most popular and common way to define success. How about this? Who are these people? The Wright brothers. Very good. We all know who they are. You didn't necessarily recognize their faces. And, you know, they didn't make a whole lot of money building bicycles and airplanes. But they are very famous. We all know them, and most of us have enjoyed the fruits of their labors. Would we say they're successful? I think the world generally looks at them as being successful people. Okay, now here's one that you may not like as much, but it's reality. Who's this guy? That's Bin Laden. He defines success not so much as money or fame, but in terms of influence, because he's trying to kill us. And the reason he's trying to kill us is we are infidels, because he's a Muslim, and he believes the Muslim doctrine that if you don't convert to being a Muslim, then you need to be killed. And so he is trying to influence the world in this war on terror against anyone that's not a Muslim. So those are three common definitions in the world today of success, fame, fortune, and influence. And most of us, if we were really true and honest about, about our opinion, we would agree these are definitions we would subscribe to. Now, what we want to do today is something a little different. Now, I'm assuming that you all believe that God created the universe. You agree with that? Did God create the universe? Okay. Do you believe that he has revealed himself in this book we call the Bible? Does everybody agree with that? Okay. Would you believe and agree that whatever this book says is more significant and probably more truthful than what we believe as a population here, as a group of people? That this book has more authority it is truth and reality for you more than what your neighbor might think. Does everybody agree with that? Okay, so if we want to find out what the Bible has to success, say about success, maybe a good place to go would be to see how Jesus defines success. Would you all agree with that? You all are going to have to get with me or I'm going to start asking you questions. Okay, This, this, this has got to be fun. Yeah, we got to get into this. If it's not fun, you're not going to remember this. How many of you remember a sermon that you heard 10 years ago? Anybody? Okay. What made you remember it? It was something. It was emotional response of some sort. You got into it. So if you want to make this investment of the next 30 minutes worthwhile, get into this. Okay. I'm trying to help you get into it. So we want to... I'm sorry? Yo, baby. Yo, baby. Okay. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about what Jesus said about success. All right, the first verse is John 17, 4. This is the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. And Jesus is talking to the Father. He says, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Okay, this is, he's about to go to the cross. He's reflecting on his life, and he's saying, I've done what you put me here to do. Does that sound like success? A statement of success? All right, look at this one. John 4, verse 34. Now, Jesus at this time is hungry. He's missed lunch. Has anybody missed lunch before? Not funny when you miss lunch. You're hungry. The stomach is growling. 
but he has this interchange with this Samaritan woman at the well, and it is food for him spiritually so much that he's forgotten about his hunger pains, and he says this to his disciples right as they get back with the, the Big Mac from McDonald's, or whatever it is they had, and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He said that when he was hungry. Now think about that. Would you say that when you're hungry? No, you're saying, where's the food? You know, all we think about is the food. Jesus was so consumed with doing what God put him there to do that physical need was secondary. How about this one? John 5, verse 19. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. The Son was so connected to the Father that every move that he made was based on what he saw the Father doing. You know, that's what sons do. Those of you that have sons, what do your sons do? Particularly when they're young. As they get older, it changes. But when they're young, what do they do? They imitate you, right? They want to be with you. They want to do what you do. They want to walk like you walk. They want to play whatever games you're playing. They talk like you, which is sometimes embarrassing. But they, they want to be with you. They want to be you. That's what sons are. And I'm, I'm using this daughters too. Daughters want to be like their moms. And that's the way it is. That's the relationship. And that's what Jesus is describing here is I'm so intimately connected to my father that I'm only going to do what he does. So Jesus gives us a definition of success, and that is success is obedience to the mission given him by the Father. Now, do you believe that you have a mission given to you by the Father? Do you believe that? Really believe that? I mean, it's, if you do, you're, you're exceptional. Because most Christians just give lip service to it. At least in my experience, when I begin to work with them, I spend a lot of time working with Christians, uh, not only in the context of local churches, but in business. And I find they all kind of give lip service to it, but in reality, they always think, well, I'm not a very important person. Why would God waste his time on me? You don't think that? It's very easy to think that. But let me say this to you. You count. You know how, how you know you count? Because God made you. That's what makes you count. You are created by God to do his bidding just like Jesus was created to do God's bidding. Now, I agree Jesus is an anomaly. He is a theanthropic person, meaning he's a God-man. There's, there's only been one Jesus, but there's the, the similarities between us and Jesus are still substantial. And one of the great similarities is that we have purpose just like Jesus had purpose. So success for a Christian needs to be defined as obedience to what God has called you to do. Now, if that is indeed true, then we, what we do is we bring the Word of God into every area of our life. Because now I've got to figure out how I'm going to live in everything I do based on this Word. So it affects me as an individual. That's supposed to be an individual. Okay? Okay? It's supposed to affect my family. It's supposed to affect my business. And it's supposed to affect my, the way I govern myself and ourselves as a community. Do we think the Bible has something to say in all these areas? Do you know what parenting really is? I, I, everywhere I go, I ask this question. I, I, I'm amazed that parents don't understand what parenting is. You know what parenting is? 
Parenting is figuring out what God created the child that he assigned to you, figuring out what that child's purpose and destiny is, training and equipping that child to do it, and releasing them to go do it. That's what parenting is. But you know what most parents say to their kids? You, you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. You know what they say? And do children have a sense of what their destiny is? No, they don't. That's the role of parents to call out the destiny. And, and so when parents say things like, you can be anything you want to be, what you're doing, in essence, is you're misguiding your children. Think about that. Because what you really need to be telling them is, you need to be telling them, God created you for a purpose, and I'm going to help you discern it, and I'm going to help you get equipped, and I'm going to help you go do it. Did you know that when Solomon built the tabernacle, who prepared the plans? David prepared the plans. Who got the materials together? David got the materials together. Who got the workmen together? David. Who got the architects and engineer? David. Who put the money together? David. And then he commissioned his son. This is what God has called you to do, and I've got everything ready for you, so go do it. That's what parenting is. Now, does that surprise you? Come on. Be honest. Most of you are probably shocked about that, if you're really honest, because most of you are thinking, well, I'm just going to provide a good environment here, and I'm going to teach them the Bible as best I can, and when they grow up, they can do whatever it is they want to do. No, you need to be figuring out what they need to do. From the very first day, I watched my daughter being born, and I'm a scientist by training, so I inspect things. Here she comes. Okay, boom. She was blue. I was a little concerned. Let's get the oxygen going here. So they did. And then I looked her over. She had all the pieces and parts. But then I saw something was missing. There was no name tag. You know, equipment has name tag, right? You know, your computer says Dell computer on it, model number, manufacturing, all that stuff. There was no name tag on it. So here, God gave me this daughter and didn't tell me what to do with her. So what am I supposed to do? I got a namer, which defines a lot about her character and her nature and her destiny. It's in your name, if you had thought about that. And you begin to unfold for her. As you study her, you see what God has put in her, the personality, the giftings, the abilities, the interests, all those things that are God-given in her, you're discerning what God's destiny is for her to release her to that destiny. That is what parenting ought to be about. I'm sorry to mean to get in all that, but... Do you see the point? The point is, the Bible has, tells us how to live life. And what I want to focus on today is how to live life in the workplace. How to define success in the workplace. How to obey God in the workplace. That's what I really want to focus on. But I want to give you a couple of points on money because money is such an impediment. Money is such an obstacle for all of us. How many of you here feel like you have a money problem? You, raise your hand if you think you've got a money problem. Okay, can I say to you, there's no such thing as a money problem. And I know what you're saying. You can say it, but I don't believe it. Can, let me tell you why there's no such thing as a money problem. Okay. Do you, are you connected to the God of the universe? Is he your father? Okay. Does he lack for any resources? Is he good? He's a good God that's going to give you what you need to do what you're called to do, right? 
You don't have money problems. You can't. What you have is an obedience problem that's manifested as a money problem. Okay, is that a brain lock? Whoop. I actually walked into a pastor's meeting one time, and the pastors were going through this. And the pastor, the, one of the guys got up and said, Hey, how I many you got money problems in there? A bunch of guys sticking up their hand. I wanted to jump straight up and say, You guys are pastors. You ought to know that money's not a root issue. Money's a symptom. Money is never, never something you should chase. You chase obedience. Obedience paves the way for provision to do what God's called you to do. So the biblical view of money, real quickly, is you can't worship God in money. Okay? Sorry. I didn't make this rule. You, you can talk to the writer of the Bible. Don't talk to me about it, but that's the way it is, because I know all of us want to do both. We want to worship God in money, but he says, you can't do it. you got to pick who you're going to worship. All right? The second thing about money is money is a tool. That's all it is, is a tool. It's a tool to enable you to do what God has called you to do so you can be a success. That's what money is. It's just a tool. This verse in Matthew 6.33, we read this verse all the time and probably don't really realize what it means. The context of this verse is about your daily needs. And he's saying, don't fret about your daily needs. And everybody here, if you're honest, probably frets at some point. Some of you more than others, and some of you have done it in the past, maybe you're not doing it today, but we've all fretted over money. He says, don't fret over money. He says, here's the deal. Seek first my kingdom. Can we define kingdom as rule and reign of God? Is that okay? Kingdom is the rule and reign of God. Seek first my kingdom and do it in my righteousness, that is, according to my values and principles. That's how you live life, and I'll take care of your needs. That's what he's saying here. Now, you look at that and you say, well, that's just too simple. It's, uh, you, know, it's the, you don't understand my life. Well, I don't have to understand your life because God understands your life, and he is your provider and your source. Your job is to discern your race, that is, your calling, and do your calling, and he's going to take care of your needs. The challenge is walking that out. And I make, I'll tell you right here, I don't know of anybody that does it great. But we all have the same challenge to get in the flow of living like Jesus did, where he, he did only what he saw the Father doing. Where his food was to do the will of God. At work, at home, at church. You ever thought about doing the will of God at church? Maybe something different? Just a, just a thought. Okay. So, let me just real quickly give you Another thing, though, kind of was the brain lock. What's the difference between provision and prosperity? You can tell I kind of like brain locks. You know why I like brain locks? Because you might remember this in 10 years. And I'm not trying to be sensational, but I'm trying to get you to poke you and to get you to realize you've got some thinking going on that's probably not biblical. And it's damaging your life. It's blocking you from doing what God's called you to do, which means that you're not in the flow of, in the favor of God. So let's define provision and prosperity. Provision is, let me suggest a definition. It is, it is having what you need to do what you're called to do. You agree? Would that be provision? If you have what you need to do what you're called, you have provision. Okay, so what would prosperity be? Having more? I mean, that would be the obvious, you know, natural definition, having more than what you need to do what you're called to do. But do we believe we have an intentional God? He's intentional and purposeful. So let me suggest prosperity is having what you need to do what you're called to do. That brain lock you? That brain lock me as I thought about it. 
Okay? Because it sounds like the same as provision, and it is. How in the world could prosperity be the same as provision? Well, the reason it's the same is because God does everything with intent and purpose. And so if you have what you perceive as an excess, what is that? Provision for something. If God all of a sudden drops $100,000 in your bank account tomorrow, what should you do? Did you say go to Neiman's? <laughs> what? Huh? What? Pray. Lord, you've given me $100,000. What do you want to do with this? That's what you do. That's what you do. Do you know there are five things you can do with money? Do you know that? There are five things. There are only five things you can do with money. Now, what would the world say is the most important thing to do with money? Consume it. That's what the world says. That's what Wall Street tells you. In fact, we are called what? Consumers. If you go to the Bible and say, what are we relative to money? Are we consumers or stewards? Stewards. Thank you. That gives me confidence in you. Okay. We need to be stewards. So if I'm going to take the five things that I can do with money and I'm going to put them in the proper order, then what, that, what would that order be? Well, let me suggest the first thing you do is you honor the Lord with your wealth because where did your wealth come from? It came from Him. Whatever paycheck you got, it came from God. You say, well, I worked to get it. Well, who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the job that you have? Who gave your employer your favor to earn that money so he could pay you? Well, ultimately, God did all of those things, so he gave you that money. Okay? So that's the first thing you do is you honor him. The next thing you do is you want to be sure you set aside money for others. You want to give. But Paul says in Ephesians, it's important that you have a job so you can give. Okay? The third thing you want to do is you want to pay your taxes. Romans 13 says we are supposed to pay our taxes. The fourth thing you do with your money is you become very wise. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. So you save up. And the last thing you do is you pay for your daily needs. The world has it upside down. We've got to learn to think biblically. Now, just real quickly, I don't, I don't have time to get into this too deeply, but I want, to, I want to deal with the prosperity of the wicked. How many of you know somebody that's prospering and they are just wicked as can be? Everybody here, if you're honest, knows somebody like that. Now, this psalm is for you. You need to meditate on this psalm, because this psalmist is angry. You ever thought about the psalmist being angry? Well, watch this. He is angry. Watch what he says. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You know, we've got to sound religious, even though we're mad. Okay? But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. What he's saying, I, I've lost my faith. I can't believe what's going on. Look at this. I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Whoa. And then he goes on, I didn't put all that up there, but he talks about how they're arrogant and proud and have no problems and they have all this money and da 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 I say, why are they having all this prosperity? Now, he's not defining prosperity the way we just defined it. He's defining it the way the world defines it. Why are they having all this apparent success? It looks like to me that in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. In vain I believe the Bible. In vain I try to be a good Christian. It's all in vain. You think he's mad? He's really ticked. He's really upset. He's shaking his fist at God and saying, this isn't right. Well, God's always good. So here, God shows up. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. 
Surely you placed them on a slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. The end of the wicked with money is ruin. Was that success? You just saw it illustrated in 1923 with those examples I gave you at the beginning. They were wicked men that looked like they were successful, but in the end they went down the slippery slope. Because the only thing that gives you lasting success is obedience to God. Not money, not fame, not influence, obedience to what God has called you to do. So what I want to do in the last few minutes here is I want to give you a picture of what obedience to God and success looks like in the workplace. How many of you work? Okay. How many of you stay at home? Okay. The ones that stay at home work more than the ones that go out. I've been in that scene. I've watched my wife for years. She's always worked harder. I came home and I got tired just watching her. You know? So this, what I'm going to show you, although I'm, I'm casting it in the workplace, it applies to everybody. Because everybody works. So what is a biblical worldview of work? If we believe that this word we call the Bible tells us how to live all of life, it tells us how to work. And it tells us how to obey God. And if we obey God, what do we have? Success. That's what we're going for. We want success in life. And who doesn't want success? You know, something systemic in it. Everybody, we want to be successful. Where did that come from? It's the way God's wired us. He's wired human beings to want success. So if we want to do this, then how do we do it? Well, let's start by taking a look at the book of Titus. And we're going to start by uh, focusing in on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Ocean. The island of Crete, as far as we know, was never visited by Paul. However, it was visited by Paul. If you look in the... In the, in the book of Acts, you don't ever find a reference to it, but you find in Titus that Paul actually visited this island at some point, although it's not recorded to us in Acts, and he took Titus with him. Titus apparently was uh, from this area up in here, because he's mentioned a lot in, in, in 2 Corinthians, which is that's where that's located, and he visited with, with Titus a good bit on journeys, and they wound up at some point down here in Crete. And Paul spent some time there, they had some meetings, people got saved, and now Paul needs to go, but he leaves Titus behind, and he tells Titus, here's what I want you to do, I want you to put everything in order. And here's the deal about Christianity. Christianity, we think today, is about fire insurance. That's what we think. Okay, I, you know, I don't want, heaven or hell, which one? I, I want to go to heaven, not hell. Okay, give me my fire insurance policy. Okay, I go to church, I accept Jesus, I get baptized. Okay, I'm a Christian, I got my fire insurance. That's what we think. Now, if you read the book of Titus, you'll find out that's not the Christianity that Paul preached. Paul preached a Christianity that says, Jesus Christ is going to change everything in your life. It's going to change the way you think and therefore the way you act. And so what was lacking, what was not in order in Crete was two things. One is they didn't have good leadership, and two, they had people that were, that were living inconsistently with Jesus Christ. They were not walking their profession. So we have a very decadent place. It's three key characteristics that are true today just as they were true then. Number one, you had liars. Okay? Now liars are those that deny the truth. Now we think about that in secular terms. But denying the truth is denying Jesus in any dimension. 
We have a society that we live in is denying Jesus left and right. We have a society of liars. You think about that? And by the way, you know what the research says? Now, I, I have some skepticism about this research, I must admit. But Gallup went out and did a poll. 40,000 workers in a workplace trying to figure out how big a factor lying was in the workplace. The question was, do you habitually lie in the workplace? Now, what, what percent of the respondents admitted to habitually lying? I have a hard, hard time even saying it because how do you tell the truth about lying? I mean, does that work? I, I don't know about this. But anyway, here, here's the result. 40,000 people interviewed. They calculated. I want you to tell me what percent do you think admitted to habitually lying at work? Give me a percentage. Huh? huh? 80. Somebody else? 60? One. One. Somebody else? 72. What do you think? Huh? None. Okay. Anybody else? 100. Okay. The, the right answer is 93%. 93% of the respondents admitted to habitually lying at work. Now, how does that make you feel about the people you do business with? A lot of confidence, right? Isn't that cool? All right, then you have the next thing. The next characteristic of the Cretans were they were evil brutes. They were animals. They were living by instinct. They were driven to pleasure. It was all about fun, pleasure, feeding their flesh. Has it ever bothered you that we're paying millions of dollars for people to play kids' games? To throw a football? To catch a football? Now, I know this may be meddling to some of you, but... The reality is, I mean, what we have is a big warning sign that things are out of order in our society. You know, the flip side of it is, if we really valued education, what should we be doing with our teachers? Yeah, that, that's reality. The, the signposts are right here. We value entertainment. We do not value education. What do we say we value? We say we value education. We are liars. We're just like the Cretans. We're liars, we're brutes, and furthermore, we're lazy gluttons. And what are lazy gluttons? Lazy gluttons are people that are not working, they're consumers who don't work. How many of you want to win the lottery? I know what you want to know. Everybody's sitting on their hands, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> That's a sucker question. Do you know what happens to people who win the lottery? Has anybody seen the studies? What do the studies say? Huh? You know, something like 90% it ruins their life. The lottery ruins your life. Now, what's the government doing about that? Are they looking at the data and saying, oh, well, this isn't good. We need to stop the lottery. Are they doing that? No. What are they saying? Lottery makes us a lot of money. <laughs> Who cares what happens to those that win it? It's their problem. It's all about greed. It's about money. You see, we're just like them. So hopefully that gives you some empathy for these people. When you realize and you see these, you look at those characteristics, the first time I read that, I said, well, that didn't describe us. And then the more I looked at it, I said, yeah, that does describe us. That's who we are. And let's, let's add insult or injury. Let's add hypocrisy to it. Oh, whoa, gee. Those of you that have, have children, you know you have a hypocrisy detector in your home. Don't you? Yeah. Let's call your children. What a gift. It's a gift to detect the hypocrisy. We all need to detect that. That's a big problem. So here you have a, a very decadent culture, mass, well, all this hypocrisy going on, and this is what Titus's mission is fix this. 
Get this fixed. Now, how is he going to fix it? Well, I want to just point out the first, first verse of chapter 2. He says this, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now, we're into sound doctrine, aren't we? Right? We're Bible-believing Christians. We want sound doctrine. And what's sound doctrine? Well, substitutionary atonement of Jesus, believing that the devil's alive and sin is real and I'm a sinner, I'm, you know, saved by grace. That's all good doctrine, isn't it? But, you know, Paul's paradigm of Christianity was much deeper than that. It included all that, but it was deeper than that. Paul's paradigm of Christianity was about transformation. It's about bringing the Word of God into you and making it incarnate. Just like Jesus was the incarnate Word of God, that's what God wants to do with you. He wants to take His Word and put it into your flesh. So you, become to, you begin to think and act like Jesus. And that way you can see what the Father's doing, and then you line up and do whatever the Father leads you to do. That's what Christianity is. So now we bring that into the workplace. We specifically look at verses 9 and 10. Now, remember, we're talking about success. What does success look like in the workplace? What are the key ingredients? And okay, now, don't let the first couple of words there throw you off. Teach slaves. I know the first thing you're thinking is, I'm not a slave. Slaves in that culture did the work. If you were a citizen, you were at Starbucks talking philosophy. You didn't work. So this is the worker. He's talking to the workers. He knows the culture that he's dealing with. He said, okay, talk to the workers and tell them this is the way you're supposed to work to look like Jesus, to obey what the Father's called us to do. There are three key characteristics of every worker. First characteristic is this. You've got to teach the workers to please their masters. Let me just read the whole verse to you, and that way it'll put the context. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they can make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So the very first thing you do to be submitted to your employer is you have to please him. And the way you please him is you show up. That's what the word means. It means show up. Now, there are a lot of ways you show up. You show up physically. You show up spiritually with your value system. You show up mentally. You show up emotionally. How many of you have heard somebody say, well, that person's out to lunch? Well, what are they saying? They didn't fully show up. They partially showed up. So if you want to be a great worker according to the, the biblical worldview, you totally show up for work. All right, what about the next characteristic? It says not to talk back to them. What is the root of your words that come out of your mouth? It's reflecting what? Your heart. You speak out of your heart. So whatever you're saying is coming right out of your heart. So if I'm going to not talk back to my employer, I need to have the right heart. I need to show up with my heart pure and my heart focused on Jesus, focused on doing what he's called me to do, tuned in to doing the will of the Father. That's how I need to go to work. Now, all of you go to work that way? You get up every morning, get, get right with God, get synced up with God. I'm going off to do the bidding of the Father, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, that's the struggle for all of us. You know, I'm not being critical of anybody. I mean, I fight this battle just like you do. Every, everybody that puts on their pants or skirt fights the battle. 
And we've got to learn that is the battle, to get up, get synced up with God to go do his bidding. The third thing that happens is you don't steal from them. Now, I know what you're saying. I don't steal. Well, you know what the researchers say? Researchers say that you waste 25% of your work day. It's consumed in personal emails, surfing the Internet, talking to friends, unnecessary visiting, uh, piddling at the water fountain, long lunch breaks, etc. They've gone out there and researched efficiency in the marketplace and concluded that 25% of the workday is just thrown away. That's called stealing. The employer is paying you to work. He's not paying you to go out there and do things that have nothing to do with his work. Is that a brain lock? Most of us are feeling like we're entitled to do those things. I mean, my goodness, I'm a slave here to this company, so I'm entitled to have a little freedom here. What you're entitled to do is obey the Lord. That's what you're entitled to do, and that's what you're obligated to do. So if you're going to do that, you don't go steal. You don't physically steal money. You don't steal assets from them. You don't steal time from them. You don't steal people away. Did you know what research you've discovered about people that are that are how well they're engaged in doing their work. 25% of the workforce is fully engaged in being a good worker. One in four is fully engaged working for the interest of the organization, trying to help the organization accomplish its mission. One in four. 19% of the workforce is working consciously, actively against the organization. Anybody know anybody like that? I bet you everybody in this room knows people like that. Because almost one in five people are working against the organization, and yet the organizations don't fire them. They keep hiring those people that are tearing down the organization. That's stealing. We're stealing from our employers. Now, we ought to do it better, guys. If we are Christians, and we profess to walk with God, and we want to do it God's way, we need to do it better. Okay, so how do we do it better? Okay, we, we begin to show up, and we show up totally. We have show up with a right heart, so we're, we're in tune with God doing God's bidding, and we're there not to steal but to, to, to subordinate our personal agenda for the good of the organization and to do everything we can to help that organization accomplish its mission. And that all assumes we're working for a company that's got a godly mission. That's how we go to work when we become great workers. And if you do, you're going to be trusted. You will be. Will you trust somebody like that? You would. You trust somebody like that. They would become your go-to people. And what happens when you're doing that is you're embodying, you're incarnating the good doctrine that you say you profess. You have become the Word of God incarnate in that organization. And what's even more amazing about this is you make God look good. That word is cosmeo. Does anybody recognize that word? Cosmetics. You put lipstick on God. You make God look good by being a great worker. What a, what a privilege it is. It suddenly makes evangelism the natural byproduct of great work. Have you ever noticed that people that do great things get, get recognized? You remember after Charles Lindbergh flew the Atlantic? I know most of you don't remember that far back, but those of you that do. He flew the Atlantic for the first time nonstop. He made it, and he became an instant celebrity. And what was the, one of the first things that happened to him? He became a consultant on political affairs. 
Now this was a male pilot that now was a consultant on political affairs. Now how did that happen? Because he became famous. He did something great. Now that's kind of a maybe a weak picture here. But the point is, if you become a great worker using biblical principles in your workplace, you will become a trusted worker, and you will be embodying the Word of God in what you do, and you make God look good, and guess what? People are going to seek you out, and they want to know what makes you tick. Who are you, and why do you do this? Have you ever seen a lousy worker try to be an evangelist? You ever seen that? I've seen that. It doesn't work. In fact, it works against the cause of Christ. I, several times I've seen situations where it's been an embarrassment that somebody was known as a Christian. I said, oh, gee, I can't believe they did that. But you take a great worker, everybody wants to be like them. They want to emulate them. And suddenly they want to know, now why, is it, why are you doing this? Well, let me tell you, the reason I'm doing this is because I'm on assignment from God. God has put me here to do this in this place at this time, and I'm here to do his bidding. I'm doing what the Father's doing. I'm lining up with him because success is obedience. Is that not a testimony? That draws people to Christ. That's what it means when you make God look good. That's the game we're in. If we want, we want to walk in the reality of our faith, success is obedience to what God has called you to do in everything you do. Does anybody recognize this guy? One of arguably the greatest disciple of Jesus Christ in the 20th century. You don't recognize him. Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived in, this, lived in Germany, went to the United States, went to seminary, could have stayed here, but he felt the call of God to go back and fight Nazi, Nazism in Germany. He knew he would go and die. He knew it. But he did it anyway, because that's what God had called him to do. It did not matter that he was going to die. What mattered was success, was obedience. And so that's what he did. Obedience for you is doing what God has called you to do. So if you want obedience in the workplace, you become a great worker. You work as if God is your boss because he is. You ever thought about that? He is your boss. The person you call your boss is simply his agent. He is your ultimate boss. That's what Colossians says. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. And there's three key things that hopefully you've gotten from this message today about how you be a great worker. Number one is you show up completely. In every way, you show up. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you are there. And secondly, you show up with the right heart. You make sure that your heart is clear with God and you're, you're there because God puts you there. You're there to do his bidding. No matter what other circumstances are going on, you're there to do his bidding. And the evidence that you have the right heart is you will use your tongue properly. And finally, you will subordinate all personal agendas to the good of the organization. You're not there for you. You are there to do the will of the Father, to do his bidding, which means you are there for the good of the organization. That's how you incarnate the word of God in your life, and that's how you're a success in the marketplace. Lord, give us grace to do that. Can I pray for you? Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the reality of your word and how it gives us the, the, the foundation of our lives. It gives us the compass to know how to go. It gives us the principles for how to live. Lord, give us the grace to incarnate your word in our hearts and our minds to reflect it in everything we do that we may honor you and be your servants. 
Lord, give us that grace today. In Jesus' name, amen.